All right, 1 Kings chapter 18. We saw last Sunday night that Elijah is back in Israel, and when he meets with Ahab, he instructs the king to gather all of Israel as well as the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah to meet him on top of Mount Carmel. And since the famine's still raging in Israel, Ahab, he agrees. The view from the top of Mount Carmel is majestic. It overlooks the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, But Elijah does not summon them to this spot because it has a nice view. While God's limitless power is certainly on display in this chapter, and while Elijah does have a great moment of being used by God, probably the pinnacle of his life as recorded in Scripture, um, this chapter is, is mostly intended to reveal God's heart towards a wayward people, that he is inviting them to come close. So chapter 18, we begin in verse 21. It says, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long do you halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Elijah arrives at the top of Mount Carmel, actually after the people are already all gathered there. When it says all the people, it doesn't mean that everyone in Israel was there. It refers to he came to all the people who were in attendance, all the folks who had gathered up there, because based on chapter 19, we know Jezebel's not there. Uh, There isn't any indication that the 400 prophets of Asherah show up, only the prophets of Baal. It's likely some Israelis stayed home and soldiers stayed at their posts. But I would hazard a guess that At least all the tribal leaders were there, as well as village leaders and even family leaders. Mount Carmel sits at the top of a large, sprawling mountain range in northern Israel. There's tons of room for any amount of people to gather up there. And so once Elijah arrives, after they're already all gathered, he opens the gathering with an important question. He says to them, how long do you halt or limp between two opinions? The word there phrase two opinions means how long do you limp on a divided mind? The word here for opinions or divided mind, it's the same word that's actually used for crutches in Hebrew. Um, Ahab and his father, they brought stability and prosperity to the northern kingdom after years of civil war and violent regime changes. But despite the fact that the money was good, things were at peace, life was good, something was missing. And so the people were trying everything. They were leaning into anything. We'll do a little of worshiping the Lord by keeping the golden bulls that Jeroboam set up, but we're also going to do a little worship of Baal. And so he says, how long are you going to lean on all these crutches and end up limping around and not getting anywhere? He says, if the Lord be God, then follow him. Not just dabble or use this bastardized system that Jeroboam set up that has nothing to do with the true worship that God gave to Moses, but really follow the Lord. And if you're going to, if Baal be God, well then follow him. If you're going to follow Baal, then stop pretending to worship the Lord too. The Lord will not share you with idols. Elijah asks a great question, (laughs) and it challenges us because there is always a tendency to follow the Lord with a divided heart, to lean on Him a bit, but also to lean on other things or even lean on our own understanding. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, which is the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. And so, before we get into this whole interesting story here, are you limping around on multiple crutches? Do you have double opinions on how to live life? Or are you following the Lord? Many centuries later, James wrote about the problem of being double-minded, and he also wrote about how to solve it. In James chapter 1, verse 8, he actually covers this topic in a, you know, multiple places in his, in his letter. 
In James 1.8, he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And I've been there. I have, I have been in that life where I want to follow the Lord, but there's a large part of me that wants a lot of other things that the Lord doesn't want for me. And that's exactly how it is. You kind of limp around, not really getting anywhere. I would show up at church, and, and I'd be like, oh, Lord, yeah, you're right, I do want that. And then, but then the week would roll by, and i want all these other things. And I would end up just really bogged down in my walk with the Lord. I would be unstable in all my ways. And so, you know, he brings this up early in his letter, and then toward the end of his letter in James 4, we read it in our Scripture reading tonight, he says in verse 8, the solution, draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so I ask you, again, before we get started, do you need to draw near to the Lord tonight? Do you need to purify your heart so that you're fully leaning on the Lord and not all these other things? Well, when Elijah asks this question, the people don't utter a peep. It's silent. This is a common phrase you actually see in the Old Testament uh, when prophets or kings show, a godly king show up and they say something and you'll see it. And, says the, and even when Jesus taught, Jesus would say things sometimes and he'd address the people and he'd say, and the people said nothing. Sadly, that is probably the most common response when God asks us to make a choice. Do nothing, put it off, not take it seriously, or maybe even give in to fear and doubt. There are many times when, and I know some of you are probably here right now or you've been here before, there have been many times in my walk with the Lord where I would go and I would hear a teaching and the Lord be so clearly speaking to me and calling out to me and saying, Will, surrender this to me. And I'm like, Lord, I would, but I'm just going to go out and do it again tomorrow. And that fear and that doubt would result in, and the people answered him, not a word. Will answered him, not a word. I go out no different than I came in. I'm sure that there were those there who knew the right answer to Elijah's question, but they were likely terrified of voicing it in public with all the prophets of Baal there, king there. I'm sure that they were probably thinking, Elijah is one of you and 451 of them. Not exactly sure I'm ready to jump on your side at the moment, even though I know you're right. Well, God knew the people would do this, and so he'd already told Elijah what to do. He said, Elijah, I want you to have a contest to prove which God is real, which God is more powerful, and which God is worthy of our whole hearts. And so verse 22, Elijah makes this proposal. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, lay it on wood, put no fire under, and then I will dress the other bull and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people, now they speak up, answered and said, that's, that's a well-spoken. That's a great idea. Let's do that. Now, Elijah starts off by pointing out why they can't just keep debating this and they, he needs to appeal to God to solve this problem. He goes, there's just one of me and 450 of these turkeys. There's only one of me. I alone remain. The word here is interesting. It doesn't mean he's saying he's the only prophet left because we already know there's a hundred hiding in caves. The word remain, it means to not be in a condition where your life is threatened. In other words, I'm the only one standing here that no one's threatened to kill yet. I'm the only one left of the prophets of God that no one's threatened to kill yet. So I'm the only one here who can speak on behalf of the Lord. Any other prophet who had stood up to Jezebel had been killed or was in hiding. Elijah alone spoke for the Lord on that mountaintop, while Baal had 450 people to speak for him. So this problem is not going to be solved by a debate. So Elijah proposes a way to settle it clearly. He says, let's each make an offering. You guys take a bull, cut it up however you need to, and then put it on the altar. I'll do the same thing. And then whichever God sends fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, we'll know that's the true God. 
And they said, that's a great idea. It was a safe plan to agree to without upsetting either Ahab or the prophets of Baal, because if nothing happened at all, Elijah would likely be executed and everyone could go home telling themselves that the famine was just coincidence. But if Baal came through, well, then they could appeal to Baal to bring rain. He's the storm god anyway. Surely a god who can rain down fire from heaven could make it rain. He could bring back the rain. Well, if the Lord came through, though, well, then everything Elijah had been telling them from the beginning was true, and the Lord needed to be followed. And he needed to be followed not just so he would end the famine. If a god could bring fire from heaven, well, then he deserved their full obedience in every way, in good times and in bad times. Maybe it's just me, but sometimes I'll read the Bible and something cool like this happens. Because, I mean, you guys probably know how the story ends. But something cool happens, and I always think to myself, Lord, like, why was I born here? Like, why couldn't have I been on that mountaintop? Like, there's a part of me that goes, it'd be a lot easier when there's a big bill to pay, and I don't know how I'm going to pay it. And I go, yeah, but I saw fire the other day. Like, God could, he could roast the company that I owe the money to, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I say that in a silly way, but sometimes I hear Christians talk, and it's like, they almost, like God, get them, roast them. Sometimes we read this passage and we think, Lord, I'd, I'd like to see some fire. But you know what's interesting? God didn't send fire to convince Elijah or even the faithful prophets who were in hiding or even those who had remained faithful in Israel. That's not who the fire was for. He sent fire to invite those who were far away to come near, to demand that God show you something miraculous before you obey Him is misunderstanding this chapter. It's misunderstanding the purpose of this event. Well, the prophets of Baal are all in, so verse 25, Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, you go first. Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first, for you are many. And then call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. Elijah is giving them the best opportunity to succeed. Like there are those times... I grew up, and I've probably told this story before, but my dad never let me win, all right? And generally speaking, I don't go easy on my kids because it makes the time when you do win a lot more meaningful, all right? Now, I realize there are nicer people out there than me. You're all fine. It's no problem. You're not bad parents or whatever. But there would be those times where my dad would be like, you know, I'd be like, Dad, why do you got to block my shot? You know, you know, he's way taller than me. And he's like, all right, all right, go take a shot. I won't block it. And then it'd be like, and poof. You know? <laughs> Feels good. So when I did it to my kids. There's a bit of that there where Elijah's like, well, go ahead. Yeah, give it your best shot. But where's your best, you know, best spot you can hit the shot from? You go first. You, take the, you pick which bull. I don't want you blaming me saying, well, you got the better bull. You go first. You take the best bull. Elijah doing this, giving them the best opportunity in the eyes of men to succeed, shows that he was absolutely convinced that they would fail. And he could only think that way if he was absolutely convinced that their God wasn't real. The only thing that he does require of them is that no subterfuge, no shenanigans, no fire under there. You get the advantage, you go first, but no fire. False prophets today still use a lot of shenanigans to get people to follow them. Some of it is purposely deceptive, and then some of it is that they are themselves deceived. It's hard to tell at times. And that's why I always want to be careful. I don't want to judge somebody's heart. I don't know where their heart's at a lot of times that's the religious instruction they grew up with, or that was the instruction, ministry instruction they received at their seminary, or whatever it might be. Maybe they have a heart after the Lord, and they just, they're deceived. It was no different back then. I'm not imagining that all these guys are charlatans. Maybe some of them were sincere. I don't know. So, Elijah those knows, though, that many false prophets are not sincere. And so he says, no shenanigans. Remember the terms. No fire under there. So, Baal is up to the bat. 
Let's see how he does. Verse 26. And they took their bullock, which was given to them, and they dressed it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar, which was made. The writer points this out at the end to explain what was going on during this two or three hour prayer meeting all morning. The word to call on the name, it means to worship, uh, to appeal to a deity through prayer. So they had a prayer and worship service, and it lasted a few hours. And they kept saying, oh, ball, oh, ball, hear us, oh, ball, hear us. But the writer tells us all their energy and all their faith was wasted on someone who was not listening. Not listening. I know that there are times when it seems like the Lord isn't listening when you're praying. There are times when I'm crying out to the Lord, and I know He hears, and I know the answer is no. And then there are other times where it feels like you're praying and your prayers are just kind of hitting the ceiling or flying off into nowhere. I know that there are times when the Lord doesn't give an answer right away. But none of those situations and feelings exist because God does not hear. Writing to persecuted Christians, Peter quotes Psalm 34, part of verse 12 and part of 16 in 1 Peter 3, verse 12. And he says this. In 1 Peter 3, 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. What's interesting is when David wrote that psalm. David wrote that psalm after he had fled from the promised land to seek asylum with the Philistines. He ended up having to pretend that that he was insane to get out of being executed. So this is a situation when David's in the wrong place, out of the will of God, not where he's supposed to be. In other words, David, when he writes this psalm, he says, God's ears were open to my prayers even when I hadn't made the best decisions. God's ears were open to my prayers even when it felt like God was very far away. Now, an unbeliever cannot claim that promise. So the prophets of Baal, what do they do as the morning services go on, their worship and prayers go on? Well, it says that they leap upon the altar. They just amp up the atmosphere. If you go to certain, it's not in my Bible college, but I've seen the coursework and the the textbooks. If you go to certain schools when they get to preaching, they'll actually have it in there. Make sure when you're making a point that isn't very strong that you get excited. And the idea is your excitement will distract from the fact that your point isn't very well thought out. I know some guys have read that textbook because I've seen them do it. (laughs) The word here to leap around, it's actually the same word as halt. They started limping or hopping or dancing on the altar, hoping that the activity and the excitement and the energy would get their God's attention. Peter, in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 18, he says that false prophets speak with great swelling words. They are full of language and activity designed to impress people, but the content of what they're saying is actually empty. Now, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that a Bible teacher who moves around on the stage or is a little bit more animated is a false prophet, right? I've had sometimes people come to me and say, well, Pastor Will, they didn't even have a pulpit. It's okay to not have a pulpit, all right? Just don't not have a Bible. And if you have one, use it correctly. (laughs) I'm not saying that activity or emotion or excitement is an evidence of a false prophet. Personality is involved in this process. I'm not saying I'm not boring, but I would definitely say that I'm not unemotional when I share. That doesn't make me a false prophet, I hope. But I would suggest to you, if the person you're listening 
two who's teaching you the Bible is going up and down the aisles or hopping and dancing on tables or chairs, you might want to pay closer attention to the content of what they're saying because it is very likely that you are being distracted by the performance from the lack of content or the bad content that's coming out of their mouth. God is going to put on a show shortly, but Elijah's words will be deep with content and with meaning. These prophets of Baal, they only had the performance. And as this goes on, their service in the morning goes on, Elijah finally points it out when the sun reaches the middle of the sky. Verse 27, 1 Kings 18, don't, I don't advise you to do this to other people. Like if you have like a Hindu like coworker and they're having a bad day, don't do this, all right? <laughs> and it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. The word mocked here, it means to ridicule someone in a way that the person doesn't realize they're being made fun of. So Elijah's, it's, it's kind of an inside joke between him and the Lord right now is what he's saying. And, and I'm going to explain why this is in a second. Because we look at this and we laugh. We're like, oh, good point, Elijah. But his words would actually not be thought of as mockery by pagans. So Elijah, he's mocking them, but they don't know he's mocking them. In fact, you can see they don't know because they take his advice. Came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry louder. For he is a god. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of stuff on his plate. Either he's talking, and actually the word here means like meditating or thinking things through. He's trying to not be distracted right now. He's got a lot of stuff on his plate. He's a God. Either he's thinking and, or meditating, talking to himself, or, and then he says he is pursuing, which means to withdraw or go aside. It speaks of seeking private time to pursue your own interests. Maybe he needs some personal time. Maybe he's taking some PTO. Or maybe he's in a journey. I mean, maybe he's just not here. Or peradventure, he's sleeping and you need to wake him up. Now again, we read this and we think that Elijah's suggestions are absurd. God doesn't need alone time to think or private time to pursue his own interests. You know, our God loves us and he sees us and he hears and he knows everything that's going on no matter what he's doing. He doesn't sleep, nor does he go ever anywhere that he isn't still with us. We know that, but the pagans all believe these things about their gods. They believe that when the sun went down, it went to sleep. When the moon wasn't up, it's because it was asleep. If they were both up at the same time, it meant somebody couldn't sleep. And again, we chuckle, but this is the thinking. This was the thinking. So that's why Elijah's ridicule is not recognized as ridicule unless you worship the Lord. And so that's why these prophets of Baal, they hear him and they're like, oh, yeah, good advice. So verse 28, they cried louder. And then it says they cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed and they had prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. In Leviticus 17 verse 11, it tells us that there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, without sacrifice. Something God set up, it's how it works. It's why the cross had to take place. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Satan longs to be worshipped like the Lord is worshipped, but there's always a perversion to it. There's always some type of twist to it. And this twist on the system God set up was very common among pagan worshippers because they believed that if you shed your own blood, well, that would gain a God's favor more quickly or better than if you shed an animal's blood, a sacrifice. And so they started cutting themselves to the point where blood's all over the altar. 
And then for hours they have these, it says they prophesied, which refers to like a frenzied sermon. They started to give these frenzied sermons on what Baal had spoken to them or shown them or what was going to happen or what the future held. And they did this until 3 p.m. for three hours. But the writer makes it very clear to us that their high commitment, high energy service never produced a voice that the people could hear, never produced any fire, never produced even a sign to show that anyone was paying attention. Perhaps it was a sincere show on the part of these prophets of Baal, but whether it was sincere or not, it was still just a show. The people were no closer to an answer than when the shenanigans began. There is a lot of wasted time on performances. We place a high value on good performances. We just do. The God of many hearts is a television screen or a monitor or a tablet or a phone or a religious service or a rally or a protest or a good cause, as long as the performance grabs our hearts. And while any of those pursuits I listed might make a person feel good or excited or titillated or like their life has meaning, none of it helps with real life and its problems. And so, into this wasted day that's almost over, Elijah speaks beautiful words to the people in verse 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. Stop watching that nonsense. Come near unto me. Israel had been so far away from God, and the foolishness of their idolatry had been on display for anywhere from six to nine hours. You know, sin is like that. It seems like it's no big deal until someone shines a big fat spotlight on it and shows you just how awful it is. Can you imagine the shame and the embarrassment they must have felt? What are we doing? And what I find interesting is Elijah doesn't bring any of that up. See how stupid you guys are? We see what a waste of time you've been doing for the last 10, 15 years? Doesn't bring any of that up. He gives them another opportunity to decide. He gave them one earlier and they didn't say a word. Now he gives them another opportunity to to decide. Come close to me. Step on this side of the contest. God wants you to come close and see what he will do. Our enemy is a liar, a murderer, and a thief. Right now in my life, I'm reading in the the Psalms and my devotions, and I'm reading them very differently than I ever have before. They're there are psalms called the imprecatory psalms, and they're the ones basically where David's saying, Lord, get my enemies. You know, break their teeth, cut their tongues in two. You know, I mean, you just get my enemies. And I would always read these things and like, I'm not like a wimp, but I'm like, I'm just not like that. I'm not like, Lord, cut them in pieces. Ship them out to all the people and nobody knows to mess with me. Like, I'm just, I don't think that way. And it, it was always hard to relate to David, a warrior, a man of war. It's always hard for me to do that. And so I'm starting to see it very differently now because the Lord is, is kind of brought to light in the last couple of years. Like, Will, you have enemies and they're not people. And the enemies that you face, they don't fight fair. They don't care about you. They don't care about the people you love. And there are, there are no rules for them. They don't care about kicking you when you're down or kicking a loved one when they're down. They don't care about taking advantage of their weak spots and exploiting them to ruin their life. And so as I'm reading through some of these imprecatory psalms and David's saying, Lord, let them go home with their tail tucked between their legs, disappointed and ashamed because all their plans were ruined. And I'm reading that now and it's it's making sense. Lord, you know what so-and-so is going through right now. You know what the enemy's trying to do in their, in their life, you know, in, in their, with their kids or, or with their marriage or at their job or with their health. Lord, 
You cause the enemy to be so soundly defeated that he's so ashamed and embarrassed at how it just completely faltered that he would leave them alone. Our enemy is wicked. He dangles wickedness in front of our flesh, and then he chastises us for giving in. He dresses sin up in a nice pretty outfit, and then he berates us for being stupid enough to be fooled by it. God is not like that at all. He has compassion on us, and he desires to rescue us from our sin and the shame that it brings to us. I encourage you, read Psalm 103, and it talks about how the Lord, even when he's, even when he's angry at our sin, even when he's disciplining us, it says he will not chide forever. It says he knows our frame, that we're simply dust. You see, the enemy, the enemy forces, they look at us and they look at our frame and they go, I can totally destroy this guy. I can totally wreck this girl. The Lord looks at us and he says, wow, they are so small. And he has compassion on us. He doesn't take advantage of us. He doesn't beat us up. He has compassion on us. And he seeks to draw us near when we're struggling. And so this time, as Elijah lovingly invites them to come close, they don't remain neutral. It says in verse 30, and all the people came near unto him. They decide to come close. And so as they come close, Elijah begins to prepare his offering. It says, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And how did he do that? Verse 31, he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob unto whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Israeli altars are unique. I was reading an article that the area, remember when in Deuteronomy, no, it's not Deuteronomy. Yeah, it's in Deuteronomy where God instructed Moses to take them to the valley where Shechem is, where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are on two sides. And then like half the tribes would call down the blessings if they're obedient to the law. And then the other half would call down the, the curses, the judgments if they were disobedient. And then they made a copy of the law and put it on a rock there. And so archaeologists for decades have been like researching, uh, digging in that area like, can we maybe find this rock? I mean, that'd be one of the coolest things ever. Or could we find the altar they used? And they were struggling because most of these archaeologists are very liberal in their approach to the Scriptures. And so they were looking for this, like, ornate type of altar. And so this one guy went over there. He's a believer. And, and he went over there, and he's like, he's like, why are we looking for an Israeli altar that looks ornate? You could never, God instructed the people of Israel, they didn't always obey this, but early on they were. And he instructed them, when you build an altar, you can, no tool. You can't use any tool to shape it. So basically the idea is any type of beauty or order that would come from it was from how basically you place stones naturally upon each other or how you pack the dirt or whatever because you couldn't use any, any, any tools. And so this guy on this premise he started going to a region that just had a ton of rocks. And in the process of, they have, they have a process where you, they have a special tool that drags through the rocks and it basically little bit by little bit it starts peeling away layers without destroying anything that's sensitive because of its age underneath. And they ended up finding an altar. They don't know if it's this altar. They found a stone with the law on it and so they think it is. But either way, they're still working on that and having peer groups judge it or whatever, but they looked for one that would have been simple. I saw the pictures, and, and again, it's just rocks. It's just rocks. So when Elijah comes up here and he sees this altar, it would have just been natural rocks, but stacked in an organized way. It doesn't tell us where this altar came from. It's possible it was one of the high places that Israelis worshiped the Lord at prior to Solomon building the temple. It's possible this was just an altar that some faithful Israelis built because they rejected Jeroboam's golden calf worship. Wherever it came from, though, it came from someone who was being obedient, and someone later on had torn it down so that now it was just a pile of rocks again. 
And so Elijah, he starts putting the rocks back in place, and he creates this new altar, repairs it, and he does it in a very deliberate way. It says he took 12 stones, 12 stones. Now, this is well into the divided kingdoms. No one thought of Israel anymore as 12 tribes. They thought of it as the northern kingdom and the house of David, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Elijah, he, by doing this, what he's saying is, guys, the whole problem started not because God judged the house of David and Jeroboam broke away. The whole problem started is because Jeroboam decided to divide the worship. God never intended for Israel's worship to be divided. And while Elijah never gives a sermon in the Scripture about those golden bulls, this is pretty much his message about that, that the worship of God was to be the same, that every Israeli was to follow their namesake. According to the number of the tribes of Jacob, unto whom the Lord had, where the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. The word Israel, it means princed by God, ruled by God, governed by God. You know, I read this, and I'm reminded of the fact that when I came to Christ, I was given a new name and a new life too. And like Israel, sometimes I don't live in a way that's worthy of my new name. And so if that describes you tonight, then God is inviting you to come close. He's inviting you to repair the altar of your heart and to lay your life down on it once again, and he will accept that. Well, Elijah's not just content with building his altar. It says he also made, verse 32, a trench around the altar. He made this ravine around the altar where it says here that it could contain two measures of seed. So three and a half to four and a half gallons of, of dry material. And he put the wood in order. So he put the wood in order on top of the altar. And then he cut the bullock in pieces and then laid him on the wood as an offering supposed to be done. And then he said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the, the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Just dump it all on the, on the animal carcass there. And then after they did that, he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it the third time. And so it resulted in verse 35 that the water ran round about the altar and filled the trench also with water. So I mean, I'm not like the barbecue king, but I'm pretty sure that when you, you know, put the coals or your propane or whatever, and then you're going to you know, put the meat on, I'm pretty sure you just don't douse the whole thing in water. I'm pretty sure that's not how it's done. I'm pretty sure this would make it impossible to light on fire. In contrast to giving the prophets of Baal every advantage in their offering, Elijah gives his offering every disadvantage in the eyes of men, because God is never at a disadvantage. Never. Jeremiah 32, 17, he says, Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Is there anything too hard for you? And then God answers him a few verses later. He says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Nothing is too hard for me. Now, that doesn't mean you should go testing the Lord. Nothing's too hard for God? All right, I'm going to sell everything I have and start my millionaire puppet, you know, industry. <laughs> Sometimes folks will come to me with ideas and I say, are you absolutely sure this is the Lord? Because <laughs> if you're not, I'm not convinced this is a good idea. <laughs> it doesn't mean we should be unwise or test the Lord. But we do need to get it into our mind that what appears to be a disadvantage or a greater difficulty for me is never so for the Lord. There is no degree of difficulty for the Lord. It's all doable for Him because He's omnipotent. Verse 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near. So now he draws near to the Lord. And he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things 
at your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their heart back again. Elijah makes it clear that none of this was his idea. From the start of the famine to this very moment, this was all part of God's instructed plan. Every bit was, Elijah, go do this. Elijah, go do this. Elijah may have loved his people, but he didn't love his people as much as the Lord loved his people. And so while Elijah does want his ministry confirmed, show them that I'm your prophet, his heart is plainly concerned that the people will turn to the Lord, not to him. He is clearly concerned that this will not just be a display of how great he is as a prophet, but how great the Lord is and how it was God's loyal love for his people that drew them here. It was his loyal love that never dimmed. False prophets, the Bible teaches us that they are in it to build a following. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, Peter says, and through covetousness they shall with feign words or deceptive words make merchandise of you. Covetousness, they're trying to get something from you. In Jude 16, Jude says something similar. They are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouths speak great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration. They're trying to take something from you to consume upon themselves. In contrast, true spiritual leaders are shepherds, and their goal is to lead people to the chief shepherd, Jesus. In 3 John, verses 2 through 4, it's a little tiny postcard. We don't probably pay too much attention to it. But there's a, a part here that always gets me. It's my heart. He says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. For I greatly rejoiced when the brethren came and they testified of the truth that is in you, even as you're walking in the truth. For I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The people that you're influencing, that you're serving, that you're ministering to, that they're walking more closely with Jesus. That's the greatest joy. That's what a true spiritual leader is. Well, God's people had come near, and that's where Elijah wants to leave them. So he wants to send to see the work that God has done to bring their hearts back to him. And so when he's done praying, 1 Kings 18, 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and the prophets of Baal and Ahab. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. No, just everything around the offering. Even licked up the water that was in the trench. The, the word licked up, it's, it's a phrase that, like, if, have you ever seen a dog eat? Like, they don't leave anything. I mean, I mean, that's what this word is referring to. Some of you are like, ew, yes, sorry, ew. But that's the idea is that there was not a lick, no pun intended, not a speck of water left. Everything was consumed. Even the, the dust, which means the rubble from the torn down parts of the altar. Remember, he only took 12 stones to repair it. So all the other stones that were there, all of that was just completely obliterated. It was an absolute miracle to anyone watching, but of no difficulty to God. In fact, this isn't the first time God's done this. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 24, when he was instituting the sacrificial system, it tells us that fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering on the altar. And so the people... They respond by declaring for the Lord, verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. Remember the initial question? If the Lord's God, then follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. Crickets. The fire comes down and like, oh, the Lord, he's God. <laughs> the Lord, he's the God. You couldn't hear me in the back before, Elijah, but I'm, I'm making it really clear now. 
No one remains silent this time, and they make their confession of faith openly. He is the real one. He is the real God. And then they prove their genuineness by following Elijah's next instructions. Verse 40, and Elijah said unto them, take or seize or capture the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And they took them. And then Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Some might accuse Elijah of being a bloodthirsty or a vengeful man, but I would think that is incorrect because he is simply obeying the civil laws set up by Moses. Now, we don't operate by the civil laws of Moses, but these were the laws in Israel at this time, not just spiritual laws. These were the civil laws. And so, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, this is just one of many places in the law that give these instructions. But in Deuteronomy 17, verse 2, it says, If there be found among you within any of your, or of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, man or woman, that has wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded you, And it be told you, and you have heard about it, and you inquired diligently, and behold, it's true. And the thing is certain that such an abomination is wrought in Israel, then shall you, doesn't matter who you are, you, doesn't matter if you're the low guy on the totem pole or you're a judge, you, Bring forth that man or that woman which has committed that wicked thing unto your gates, even that man or that woman, and you shall stone them with stones till they die. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put, uh, put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. And the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and then afterward the hands of all the people. So shall you put the evil away from among you. After six hours of prayer and worship and preaching that Baal is the God, there was no doubt of their guilt of idolatry. All of these people were just carrying out God's law. Now, I am glad that that's not our civil law, (laughs) but Israel, this is how God set it up, and they needed to be obedient to it. And so they, by them doing this, they're showing that they're serious and sincere in their desire to follow the Lord from this point forward. Now, I know there's more in the rest of the chapter. We're not going to cover that tonight because, in my opinion, this story is almost like a different topic because it leads to something else in Elijah's life. So we'll, Lord willing, finish chapter 18 next week, and then we'll start 19 as well. But as we leave here, verse 40, at the end of it, with the people following the Lord again, I think it's important to point something out. Most of these people came here at the order of the king with the hope of the famine being fixed. But has Elijah spoken a single word about rain up to this point? Elijah hadn't spoken a single word about rain when they turned back to the Lord. God is going to bring back rain in the next few verses, but there was something more important than a famine that needed to be fixed. I bring this up. I bring this up because there is teaching out there today that says, well, you know, I mean, there's more important problems than the gospel or people's eternity. I'm not saying we shouldn't feed people who don't have food or give them clothes or, you know, help them out or be, that's not my point. We should do all those things. In fact, our our faith is, is really lax feet if we're not doing those things. But our biggest problem, any person's biggest problem is they need the Lord. They need the Lord. And so when we sit down, I sit down with somebody whose life is a wreck, and you're trying to say, okay, you know, we want to help them get their life back together. We start, though, by saying, let's talk about where you're at with the Lord, because that is your most 
important, your biggest need, it's the biggest problem in your life right now if that's not okay. Now, by including this event, again, we read this story and we could easily forget that there's an audience that the writer's writing to. By including this event in 1 Kings, the writer of 1 Kings is communicating something to those exiles in Babylon. He's saying, guys, there's a more important thing that needs to be fixed than the fact that you're captives in Babylon. And just as your ancestors were far away from God and God wanted them close again, that truth applies to you. And that means it applies to us. If God is far away from me, it is never because that's how he wants it to be. His top priority always is drawing me close. His heart is toward you. He has compassion on you when you're away from him. And so I just exhort you tonight, heed the writer's message to those exiles. Don't stay away. Come close because the Lord is waiting for you with open arms. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Lord, it, it blows me away how compassionate you are, how patient you've been with me. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you invite me to come close. And Lord, what a privilege to be able to come and read about this and to know, every person here can know that that's your desire, that you want us close, not far away. So Lord, in wherever everybody's at tonight in their walk with you, would you drive that truth home to our hearts that no one would leave here tonight far away from you? Lord, as we come near and we close with this song of worship to you, we give you our hearts, we give you our lives as a burnt offering, and we say, Lord, consume us. Have everything, nothing left, not even, not even a speck of water left that's been you know, dousing our love for you. Or just have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.